very, very warm welcome to you. It's great to see everybody here this evening. My name is Mark Harris. If we haven't met before, I help to lead the Christians in Parliament group here. And this evening is a part of a, a regular series of events that we hold here at the Speaker's House two or three times a year, where we aim to look at the personal and the public relevance of the Christian faith. And we're really delighted to have David Suchet here with us uh, this evening to help us do that. Uh, he's so well known to everybody here, I know, but by way of very brief introduction, he's been acting now for almost 50 years in theatre, in television and in film. He spent 13 years as part of the Royal Shakespeare Company and he's uh, taken on some of those great Shakespearean roles. He's also well-known on the non-Shakespearean stage, too, particularly in recent years for his Salieri in uh, Amadeus, and uh, very recently as Lady Bracknell in uh, the important <laughs> movie, uh, some of you may well have seen. He's uh, starred in, in several well-known TV series, such as Freud and Blot on the Landscape, that particularly got him noticed in the TV world in the 1980s. And uh, as well, many Hollywood films from the 1980s onwards. And of course, he has thoroughly incarnated Hercule Poirot yeah. for 24 years in that internationally acclaimed TV series. Now, some of you may not know that in more recent years, he has devoted himself to the audio recording of the entire new international version of the Bible which uh, is now available on CD and as an app, and no doubt in lots of other forms too. And I know lots of you actually are already listening to it as, as, as a daily reading. And he's also done two documentary series for the BBC on the Apostles Paul and the Apostle Peter. More of it we'll hear about shortly. Uh, Caroline Spellman is very kindly going to interview David for approximately 45 minutes. And then we'll have an opportunity for open Q&A for another 30 minutes or so. We'll aim to uh, finish about 8.45. Please don't feel you need to rush. There'll be plenty of time to hang around afterwards if you don't need to rush off. Um, but without further ado, would you please welcome David Suchet and Caroline. Hello. in the incredibly lucky position of being able to interview you this evening, and I know a lot of my colleagues would just love the chance to do this, so um, we've really been looking forward to this. It's a great treat for us. David. Well, it's a great treat for me too, because uh, this is, I haven't done anything quite like this before, so um, this is good. This is really good, and thanks for coming. <laughs> well, the pleasure is ours. Now, during those five decades, almost five decades, of being a professional actor, we'd love to hear you know, what were some of your favourite roles, and, and why? Well, I suppose in the early days, um, when I was in rep, I always managed to get the big roles, because I was in a company. I joined uh, a repertory theatre when I was 23 years of age, but always playing men of about 50, <laughs> because I wasn't six foot two or blonde. <laughs> I was always a character actor. And if you hear my voice, it's not that, I mean, it's very, it's a deep voice. It's more of a, and suited to, um, to character work. So I, I 
the big, the first big one I played was uh, Shylock at the age of 23, which was, um, the, I actually, I think it's, I'm not showing off, but I think I'm, I've read this, so I'm not sure it's true. <laughs> um, I read that I'm the youngest professional Shylock in the UK. But I don't know whether that's true or not. I had the other chance to do it at Stratford in 1981. Um, so I've had two bites of that cherry, which was really nice. Um, other roles that I've enjoyed enormously was George in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I played with Diana Rigg, Dame Diana Rigg. Um, All My Sons, Joe Keller with Zoe Wanamaker, Iago uh, in, at Stratford, um, and of course Poirot. Mm -hmm. um, that really, I suppose, I can see the obit now Really, it'll be, if, if I get into the over, it'll be Poirot and then a byline of what else I've done. But um, Poirot has to be up there with, with you know, my, my very favourites. Well, I think you are to us, Monsieur Poirot. You know, yeah. You are. Yeah. Um, so we would be really interested to know how you came to play that part. Well, yes. Um, I, I, it really, I was in Blot on the Landscape and there was a producer called Brian Eastman who was approached by the Agatha Christie estate because they'd seen Blot on the Landscape. They had also seen a film that I was in with Peter Ustinov as Hercule Poirot. And I was Inspector Jab. And the film that I appeared with him was 13 at dinner. And the Agatha Christie estate saw this and decided that I was so bad. <laughs> this is absolutely true. And yet, in Blot, they thought I was very good. And they saw that, from their point of view, that I could, because I was a character actor, and the way I worked, and they did a lot of research on me, and realized that I do a lot of research myself, that I could be, and if I wanted to, be their next Poirot. So Brian, the common link, came to me when we were living in Acton and took me out to a Chinese restaurant and said, have I heard of Hercule Poirot? Well, I said, well, yes, because I was Inspector Jap. And they said, no, well, we, we were thinking of doing a whole a series of the first, uh, all short stories. We're going to do the 30 short stories. And uh, would you like to play? And I said, well, I didn't really know the character well enough. So I started reading. And then I rang my brother John, who's very intellectual and knows all about these things. You know, John on Classic FM, do you ever, did you ever tune in, tune in yes, to him? Yes. Anyway, so I rang him, because he's the elder brother, and I said, you know about Hercule Poirot? And he said, yeah, of course I know about Hercule Poirot. I said, okay, okay, okay. Well, I've been asked to play him. What do you think? He said, don't touch it with a barge pot. <laughs> <laughs> and the moral of that story is never listen to your older brother. Uh, because his reaction was such that it took me right back to the books and after reading, you know, enough to whet my appetite, I, I said, yes, please. So that's how I got the, the, the short stories. And I think it. in some ways you made that part your own, very much. And I'd be interested to know how a professional actor really prepares to take on uh, a, a, a figure like that, a known figure in literature. Yes, it's, um, 
I think if I, I mean, I could go on for hours about how I prepared for that role, but suffice to say, I had uh, sheets of paper by the side of me and I slowly went through every single word that she wrote and built up a dossier. And by the time I'd finished, the dossier was about that thick, but I had enough to work on and develop uh, <clears throat> not only his worldview, not only his Catholicism, the reason that he feels he was put on this planet Earth uh, by le bon Dieu. But I also knew that, that this character had to sound. And one of the most important things, or one of the jokes that go through the books, is that everybody thinks he's French. That's a sort of running gag. But I was reading about a Belgian. Now, Belgian, if you hear, if you hear a proper Belgian, it, it has a little bit of French, but you'd know it wasn't properly French. So why does everybody think it's French? So I thought, well, what I have to do for my viewers and for Agatha Christie is to find a voice and an accent and where that voice was placed that would embody, because the person, if you break that word into two, two halves, person, person, personis, through, person, sound. That's who you are. And you have a voice that is absolutely distinctive and unique to you. Even identical twins do not sound the same. That's why you get impersonators. They try to be you. So I had to find him through his voice. So I listened to English-speaking Belgian radio. I listened to English-speaking French radio. I listened to country French, and I listened to country Belgian. And then I would put, try and get a similar sort of uh, guttural sound sometimes for this man, but also to make sure he was sounding French. <laughs> but then where was I going to place the voice? Because I had read that he does not really exist from here down. Now my voice, as you can hear, exists here. Well, that's not where Poirot lives. Poirot lives in he is a walking brain. So I had to move with this accent that I'm talking to you now. I had to slowly build him up and raise the voice and coming up in my chest and into my throat and into my chin and into my brain and there I saw you for all. It's a marvellous illustration of your skill. If only I had that, that kind of skill. It's wonderful and it's wonderful and interesting to see how you achieve it. Um, but I, I think people would be... Uh, more surprised, really, uh, because we always feel we know um, celebrities on television by what they present to us. But actually, often, we don't really know them. and We don't really know what goes on in their head and their heart. And I think we would find it very interesting to learn about what it was that prompted you to go on a journey exploring the meaning of life and coming to faith. How did that happen? Well, once again, I'm not going to go into the whole of 
the beginning of the conversion that never actually stops, as you know, if you're Christian. Can I just ask who, how many uh, uh, are not Christian in the room? Great, great. Um, well, you, I hope to be talking to you as well through me, because I wasn't a Christian either before, and I didn't come to Christianity until I was 40. So I was quite, quite um, well on in years by the time that happened. But I was always searching for something. Um, I grew up in the 60s, uh, in that great, huge, liberal explosion. Uh, and I would read books like Castanada. I don't know if you remember those sort of books, the sort of spiritual New Age books that were beginning to come out and that sort of thing. I was searching for something because I really didn't believe that what we had was all it, all it was. Um, I'd had religious education at school, but I was at boarding school when I was eight in 1954 and just after the war, and it wasn't really, that was really religion for exams. That can put you off. And it can really put you <laughs> off, and it made me walk away. So I didn't really have anything. Um, and I was lying, my great, um, if you like, my mentor in my life was my late grandfather, James Jarshay, who was a, a pre professional Fleet Street photographer. He was a wonderful man. And I felt such a loss when he died. And I remember I was filming in Seattle, and this was in 1986. And Jimmy, my, my grandfather, had died way back in 1960, 65, 66. But I was lying, literally lying in the bath, and I was thinking about him and how he, I felt he was with me all the time and how his presence, his spirit was with me. It's like my, my guide, if you like. And then I asked myself, well, that's very interesting. You think like this, but you don't believe in afterlife. Well, how can you not believe in afterlife and you just believe that your grandfather is the spirit's with you? And that was a, a, a strange paradox for me. So I literally got out the bath and I was in a hotel because I was filming and I knew there'd be a Gideon's Bible. You know, I thought I'd, I'd read about uh, resurrection and afterlife and that sort of thing. So I got out, dried myself, went to the bedside table and it was empty. It's probably the only hotel I've been in ever since. <laughs> I haven't got a Gideon's Bible. Anyway, it, it was empty. And I couldn't, get, something happened. I don't know what happened, but I couldn't sleep without needing to find this out because it related to my belief in my grandfather. It was very important. So the next morning, um, I thought I'd ring, ring a Bible store and, and get a Bible. There wasn't one in my bedroom. So I opened the yellow pages of uh, religious bookstores in America, in Seattle, and it was this big, right? And I just opened it up anywhere. I'd say, I'll find and, and ask for one near to where I was. So I literally just dialed and it says, hello. And I said, hello, um, could you please tell me where you're located? And they said this, that and the other. And I told them my hotel. And he said, oh, we're right underneath. <laughs> oh, OK. Um, and then I felt terribly embarrassed. Uh, I didn't find this easy at the age of 40, having rejected religion. So I almost whispered down the phone, 
do you sell Bibles? <laughs> it's like I was asking for pornography or something like that. Anyway, I went and obviously, yeah, that's what we do. That's, 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 that's what our shop consists of. So I went downstairs and we talked about translation. I didn't know there were different versions of the Bible at all. So I got a version, which was fairly classical because I love Elizabethan English. Uh, I've done 13 years of Shakespeare, um, etc. And I, and I love the old King James. That's what I thought. So I would get that. So I came back. And I thought, well, I won't read it now. My bedroom's just been cleaned, so that's lovely. I'll put it by my bed. I opened the drawer, and there was the Gideon's Bible. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, the Gideon's Bible was a modern version. So I had a modern version, and I had a classical version. And looking back, wasn't God clever with his bait? He threw that line in. And he got me through language, which I absolutely adore. I mean, I love, as you hear, I love the voice, I love expression, I love words, I like Elizabethan language, and I like all language. I love conversing, I really do. And I thought, well, I won't read about Jesus because I don't believe in him. I don't know about him. It was religion for exams. But I do know somebody who lived, have, has written letters in, in this book, and his name was Paul. And I, th and I looked in with the letters of Paul. What did he write? What did he write? And there was a letter, and I've always been interested in Rome. So I read his letter to the Romans. But what I did, was something that you may find interesting. When I was at Stratford with the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, the directors, John Barton in particular, our great, great direct Shakespearean director, used, used to say to me when I was approaching, especially Shylock for the second time, and he was uh, directing me, he said, David, sit down, I want to talk to you. This play, you know, but I want you to imagine that it's just come through your letterbox and it's a brand new play. And I want you to read it again, because you're coming with preconceptions. I want you to read it again as if it's a new play. I remembered that. And I said to myself, I'm going to read this letter as though it's to me. And it's just come through my letterbox. Mm. And I had the classical, I had the modern, and I started to read. And I have to say, up to chapter seven of the 16, I didn't really understand anything. <laughs> I knew what it was saying, but I didn't understand. Then I hit Romans chapter eight, and something started to go bang. And then nine, and then 10, and 11. And all that relates to Jesus's relationship to the Jews at his time and how he, all that, that, that whole conflict Paul was writing about. And then from 11 to the end, I read a worldview that I had been searching for all my life. And I thought, wow, my goodness me, if I or people could actually behave in a way that I've just read, then this is the most fantastic thing in the world. And 
then I had a problem. Because where did Paul get this from? He got it from Jesus. He got it from Christ himself. Because he said he was taught for three years in the wilderness in the spirit of Christ. Now Paul, being a huge intellectual, very famous in his time, um, he would never ever say that lightly. So I had to then go right back to the beginning and start with the Gospels. And that's what I did. And I went right through every single line of the Gospels, right the New Testament until I hit the Old. And then I was so intrigued and so buzzing with it and excited that I then went right back and read the Old Testament as well. Amazing. I, I, if I was thinking how I would encourage a friend to start with reading the Bible, I wouldn't direct them to Romans 8, I don't think, because I would think, gosh, that's really chunky stuff. It's chunky Romans stuff, 8. but actually, well, I'm in good company because Augustine was converted by oh, Romans 8. Very good company. <laughs> uh, uh, um, and, a lot, and I'm told many, many others. <laughs> Romans is the most extraordinary thing because once you get past 8 and, and how to live and how to be and how to be with strangers and how to live in family, and how, it covers... It, covers mm. such a lot mm. that it gave it gave me um, well suddenly I had a, a world view of of the Christian worldview of actually love because that's what the Christian religion is about it's if Jesus was asked which of the commandments of, and the Jewish commandments the Moses commandments goes over a hundred and whatever it is how many commandments and Jesus said there are only two love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, and love your neighbour as yourself. And then he was asked to say, somebody said, well, who's my neighbour? And he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. And by that he's saying, possibly the person you don't like very much indeed. But it's another human being. And we're all on the road together. We're all travellers, all of us in this room. We're all travellers. However we start to however we finish, we start, we're going to slip off the end. That's a given. We're all going to do it. It's what you do in between. And this is what uh, I discovered for myself. And I think the remarkable thing about your story there is just the sheer power of the words. Yeah. You know, I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels a bit intimidated with the whole idea of trying to evangelize and convert other people. But I felt very encouraged by what you said. <coughs> well, actually the words have that potency. Well, I'm not, I, I'm not an evangelist, and I haven't come here to be an evangelist, but um, I, 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 you know, one of the, the quotes I read about scripture or the power of the word, which I'll, I'll read to you from it rather than my own words. And this is, this is Paul, well, no, it wasn't Paul, it was the writer of the Hebrews. This was, this was a letter written to the Jews. And um, it's, it's just about the, the word. For the word of God, it says, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And what that basically means is that if you read this, this book that men died for, translating into English, it's the very most important book in the whole of English literature, this, 
If you read it carefully and quietly, with an open mind, it will affect you. And that's what he was trying to say when he was writing that letter. It will affect you. The Word of God is the most powerful thing to read because somehow when you're reading it, you can't help applying it to yourself. And if you apply, if you apply it to yourself, then it will, it will tell you where you're wrong. And it will probably make you feel bad about yourself, but maybe want you, make, you, make you want to improve yourself. It, it is extremely powerful. And my conversion has all to do with this. It has nothing to do with anything else at all. Because when I became a Christian, what I found so difficult and I don't wish to offend any churchman here, I really don't, but it was a problem for me. I couldn't find a church in the regular Church of England that could teach properly. And I, f I felt that for years. In fact, I still feel it. There are churches that teach, yes. But generally speaking, we, are dread we have a dreadful lack of teachers in our, in our churches and therefore people are hungry. People want to be fed. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Well, he wasn't talking about food. He was talking about teaching. And we all need teaching. I didn't have any. I'm self-taught. So once again, you see, he knows this anyway, but he got me with his hook, you see. And he knew that I wasn't going to find it easy. So he knew I had to research like I would all my roles because I didn't have blind faith. I'm not a person with blind faith. I wish I did, but I'm not. So I researched and read and read and read and researched and researched. My poor wife will tell you <laughs> that there's not a day goes by where I don't question. And we're allowed to question. Of course we're allowed to question. Of course we have doubts and all the rest of it. I'm not certain. If I was certain, I'd be more like a fundamentalist. I'm not. I have doubts. It keeps my feet on the ground. I have feet of clay, but I stand with those feet of clay on a very firm foundation, which is, which is Christ. So that discovery that you made of the, you know, the power of the words that you were reading and your work to research them and understand them well, is, is that partly what motivated you to do an audio recording of the whole Bible? You wanted more people to yeah, well, hear at, it? Yeah, well, at the age of 40, I was, um, um, when I was converted, and I suppose I read the Bible, in the, well, I recorded the Bible, what was it, about four years ago now? About, about four years ago. So I had a big, long time in between. And I realized that it was... Yes, possibly the most, well, it is the most important book that has ever been translated into the English language. Men have died for this, men have lived for this. It's changed the world, this book. There's not one, actually, uh, just out of interest, there's not one fact in here that has been disproved. You may not agree with it, but there's not one fact that has been disproved. You can argue it, but it hasn't been disproved. But I was aware that it was probably the biggest selling, most unread book in the world. Yes. 
and everyone's I, got a copy, hey? And I, well, everyone will have a copy. Everyone will have a copy at the baptism or whatever it was, christening, that will be given, handed down. But I do believe it's not read. So I wanted to desperately read it for you. And because in the Bible, constantly, 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 you hear, you read the words, hear the word of the Lord. That's because most people were illiterate. Hear it, hear it, because what goes in can then be absorbed. It can with the eye, but if you can't read, it's no good. But if you can hear, then that's what the Bible says. Now we have the Bible in, 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 in Braille, so, so they can. But, so I wanted to read it out loud, and in so doing, I uh, hope that, I, I'm not trying to convert anybody, I'm just hoping that people will find it more accessible, that they can listen to it in their car, they can listen to it in their bedroom, they can listen to it having a bath, they switch the sound up with an electric razor, you can even hear it over that. I tell you what, not my reading, but the content, it ain't boring. The Bible, Biblios, is a group of books. And the one thing that surprised me on my first read was not that I was just reading a history book or a fable or this, that and the other. I was reading poetry. I was reading history. I was reading biography. I was, I was reading um, love poetry and all these things. And I was thinking, this... No wonder people only want to take this on Desert Island Discs. You don't need anything else, actually. And there were many people in history that said, I'm a person of one book. Well, it's a book that contains a library of books. So you're never bored. Mm. And you may look at that and say, well, I'm not interested in that. Hey, flip over the pages. There's another one there. It's never the same. It's, it's constantly changing. And it contains the Hebrew prayer book, the Psalms. It's a, it's a brilliant book. Mm. Well, they're one of my absolute favourites, uh, the Psalms. But I'd love to hear, what's your favourite passage after nearly 250 hours of recording the whole Bible? And I should think at least twice that in preparation. Yeah, I recorded it 250 hours and there was nearly 400 hours of prep. And that was because the greatest danger in reading a Bible is that you come with your own preconceptions mm -hmm. and you also are very aware that people use the Bible and take everything out of context and that's the most dangerous thing to do. I warn you now, don't quote the Bible out of context and never listen to anybody quoting the Bible in an argument to you without placing what he's saying in context. I'm so glad I really you mean, said that. I really mean that. It's terribly important because it can, it, can be, it can be dangerously used. All right, so do remember that. Um, but my favourite bit, my very, very favourite bit, is that very intimate section um, where Jesus, after the Last Supper that we all know about, uh, took time to encourage his disciples. And uh, I will, well, I've got it somewhere where the actual passage, passage it's... Um, See if I can find it, because it would be nice to pass that on. Um, no, I haven't got it at the moment. Anyway, you can find me afterwards. 
It's, yes, it is. It's, it's the book of John, the Gospel of John, and the, and the chapters 14 to 18, basically. And it is so intimate. And it's Jesus speaking quietly at that point to the 11, because Judas has already left to go to the um, Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and, and, and betray Christ. So there were 11 left. And he speaks very, very quietly to them, tells them about the Holy Spirit um, that's going to come when he goes. He talks about his death and he tries to encourage these 11 men that are ultimately going to be left on the world when, in the world when he's gone. And it is so intimate, it is so gentle, it is so warm, and it is so human. I think Renaissance art sometimes is responsible for us giving a romantic image of Christ. Christ was 100% God, yes, but he was also 100% man. And we often forget that side of him, the man who suffered, who was terrified of being crucified, who sweated blood. We're, we're, you know, they say he, his drops of sweat were like blood. He was human in the same way as we are human. And the way he talks to his disciples, if ever you want to just have a little quiet time on your own, Read, read, read that, John 14 to 18, I think it was, I said. But um, absolutely brilliant, absolutely. And I enjoyed reading that uh, in the recording a little too much, so I had to start again because I was getting <laughs> indulgent. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just shows how meticulously you, you prepare. And, and I think many of us who've tried to read the Bible the whole way through, you can get stuck in places. And yeah. there are some difficult oh, sections. Oh, terribly difficult. So what would be your least favorite bit then? <laughs> well, there, I have to say, recording the book of Chronicles. Now, you may not know what Chronicles is, but the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament is like, is like the census of the, of the whole of the Israelites. And every... It's, that's what we hear, but so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, and the families, and the family trees, and the family trees, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, and I've got pronunciations of all the names there, and all the names there, and all the names there, and the family of this one, and the family of that one. I was going, I can't believe it, I can't, I can't do this, I can't do this. And I was really getting quite, rather like a diva in the recording studios. And, you know, but then, I suddenly thought of something. How can I make this important? Forget that it's a census. This is a review of a play called Life in Their Time. So when you mention a name, it's an individual. Or that's their family. So that when later, in generations to come, that same family read that census, they go, yeah, that's my family. So it's important enough to have been noted down. And then I was all right. Then I could, when I had a difficult name, instead of swearing and cussing and shouting, I would say, get it right. Get it right for them, because they're individuals and they need to be heard, because their name is in there. Yeah. Like having, suddenly reading, you know, in generations to come, Sheila Suchet. And somebody says, do you know, that's the one that they in. Yeah. It actually lived. And every life we know is a gift and an important one. 
Well, I shall remember that when I'm stumbling over the genealogy at the start of the Gospel of Matthew <laughs> at some at service. I mean, there are many very unpronounceable names. Oh, yes. But, you know, it, uh, in contemporary culture, we know the importance of naming names, don't we? I'm always really struck when they read out the names well, on the anniversary of 9-11. Those names matter so It's much. the first thing you're given, probably yeah. often before you were born. Yeah. And that's uh, very important as an actor, uh, or uh, when you're in a play, to get that name heard for the audience right at the beginning. So when you mention a name, mm. you've got to really lay, lay it within the character, within the play, because what your name is, is your first identity. That's very profound. So having spent so much time reading the Bible, um, what do you think it, it has to say most powerfully to our contemporary culture, indeed to us in, in contemporary politics? Well, I would say that it's, it, it, you know, the biggest selling books probably in Waterstones and Foils or any big bookshops, I mean, I'm not making light of this, but uh, are probably self-help books. People are desperate at the moment for self-help or how to become a leader or how to be effective in business and how to be this and how to be that. That's, that's where they are. And they often forget, and uh, you know, it, it, is, it is often forgotten that this is Gideon's, by the way, Gideon's New Testament. And actually, what they did, the people who started this, this, this version, if you open the page of a Gideon's Bible when you're next in a hotel, you will see where to find help when afraid or fearful, anxious or worried, bereaved, bitter or critical, choosing a career, conscious of sin, contemplating marriage, depressed or discouraged, doubting, and so it goes on and on and on. This is in one level, when you read it, you can get great encouragement because it is, in a sense, the teaching of Christ that turned the whole of his society on its head. When you read his teaching and apply it to your life, it's like a guidebook for you. It's, it really is like a guidebook. I'm not trying to sell it out of context. I'm saying if you read it prayerfully and quietly, and you read and you get books that will tell you where to find these things, you know, get a Gideon's. Just get a Gideon's. It makes it easy and try and see where it can help you. Because um, this is the book that introduced us to Jesus Christ, and without Jesus Christ, there'd be no Christianity in the world today. So this is a pretty important book. Understatement. <laughs> it obviously changed your life. So um, you, in recent years, you, you've taken, you've combined, really, your faith and your professional acting career with an exploration of different characters in the Bible. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit your, your documentaries about Peter and Paul. Well, I wanted to make, it's funny, I was doing a voiceover for a film about Jesus um, for a, pr a production company called CTVC. And the producer was there and I had gone in to do a, a voiceover for the, the film, to narrate the film. 
And we were talking about faith, and he didn't know at that time that I you know, had a strong faith. And then he said, you know, and we talked, and he found out. And then I said to him, I don't know what I said to him, I said, I know what I want, what I want to do. And he said, well, I said, I'd like to make a documentary on Paul. He said, why? Because I said, well, without him, I wouldn't be here as a Christian. So I would like to really find out about the character of this extraordinary man that is, I felt at the time, and I still feel even more now, uh, is uh, misunderstood in so many areas uh, because he's quoted out of context. Remember that, please. Remember it, remember it, remember it. Um, he's quoted out of context and therefore they, they think he's anti-women and all the rest of it. But he is the most extraordinary, extraordinary man who also had a huge conversion experience. Yeah. Huge conversion experience. You probably heard the expression anyway. It was like the road to Damascus. And that's where he saw the blinding light and he met Christ in that, in that vision and changed his life and, uh, and became a follower of Christ. Whereas just beforehand, he had been persecuting so-called followers of Christ. So he did a complete about turn. That was him. I wanted to do that. And then while I was making that documentary, I was aware of the importance of the rest of the 12 um, apostles and the importance of Peter because of the Roman Catholic Church. And they say that Peter was the, the first bishop of Rome. And I also knew that, the, that there were some disagreements with Peter and Paul. And I thought, well, do you know, the, the head of the church and Paul, the head, without Paul, possibly the message would never have got out, certainly beyond Israel. Paul took Christianity into Europe. Uh, without those journeys of his, it's li very likely that Christianity would have stayed and possibly died as a small believing group of people in Israel. But Paul was the one that really took it to the world. So him, I wanted to do, and Peter, because of his importance as well, uh, as supposedly the first bishop of Rome. But more than anything else, I knew that Peter often failed. And because he often failed, it's one of the great things about the Bible, actually. You hear about failure, you don't always hear about success. It's great. You're great that people, you know, can't make it, doesn't, they can't do things right. And Peter constantly failed Jesus. They had a one, he had a wonderful relationship with Jesus, possibly the closest to Jesus on one level of all, the, all his um, uh, 12 that he chose. But he betrayed him at the very end and said, I don't know him. I'm not part of him. And because he was allowed to fail, and Jesus forgave him. It made me accept that I can fail, which I do daily, absolutely. Every day I fail, but I know that I'm still loved, as Peter was. And that's why I wanted to do Peter. Well, that's a great explanation. Thank you. And very shortly, we're going to open up to questions from the floor. But I just wanted to ask myself, I wanted to ask you one more question about the way your faith makes you look to the future, you know, how it shapes you and how it shapes the way you look ahead. You and Sheila, together. Well, with the, with the world view of what Christianity has done, is answered, answered the question for me, um, who I am, 
we all ask that question, who am I? And um, the great Henry Nouwen did a wonderful sermon on that and saying very often our identity is, uh, is uh, what we do with our lives, the label, what we do. Uh, what people say about us is our identity and maybe what we have is our identity. And there was a wonderful sermon when he says the identity you really have as a Christian is not going to lead a life of ups and downs that you know what you have, what you do, what people say about you can vary at any stage in your life and you can go through this little life of yours zigzagging like that up and down, up and down, up and down. But the constant for the Christian is to know that you're beloved of God. You're the beloved son of God. And that is a constant. So when you're up, you can still stay there. When you're down and depressed, you can still stay there. You can stay on a constant line. Then, with that constant belief that I am a child of God, which I do believe with all my heart, with that belief and our creed, I have hope. I have hope for the future that I will have an everlasting life, that I will meet the risen Christ and I will, I will spend eternity uh, with God. It gives me hope in the present for the future and that's not a bad place to be now. Well, you've just said the best possible thing you could say in a political audience, which is, you know, it, it, it helps you deal with the ups and downs. Because, boy, do we have our ups and downs. And uh, th that you, you may not realise that you have <laughs> ministered to us uh, in, in a way that, that really is helpful to us. We need, we need some pretty firm anchors just to, just to keep going forward, so I can tell you, in this place. Well, now's the opportunity for friends and colleagues to ask... Any question you like of David, if I think it's completely out of order, I will... And, I will and please do, please, please ask, because I, I ain't yeah, coming really back. Nice. No, no, we don't want any, we don't want any stony silence. Yes. So uh, grab me while I'm here, please. So and maybe out of courtesy, introduce yourself when you ask the question, yeah. just so uh, Stephen, I can see you. Yeah. Thanks very much indeed. I've, Stephen thank Pound. you so much for tonight. I feel absolutely privileged to have actually heard it. And I also rather empathise with that, your comments about the 60s. I have a vague recollection that I was around in that decay. Let me throw a bit of a blur. Uh, but like you, I read Carlos Castaneda, yes. Frank Bramper, yeah. um, Herman Hesse, and other yes. that was good enough for me. Oh, that's wonderful, but yes. I was fascinated by what you said about identity. And you haven't actually mentioned much about um, your, your personal life, where your family came from. I understand you came from the old Commonwealth of Lithuania and Poland, originally, mm. via right the way around the world and back. How do you feel about your own identity, particularly in the time of the, the dark, dreadful disaster of June the 23rd? I obviously have my own views on that. You can keep up those references. In terms of geography, because we've heard you define yourself in terms of your theology. How do you place yourself in the world? Well, what a wonderful question. Um, how do I place myself in the world? I, I, I don't really um, concern myself with that question. Um, I know where I came from, thanks to who do you think you are. Um, <laughs> the, they did all the research for me, and you're absolutely right. We, were, we came from a little shtetl in Lithuania, and my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a rabbinical butcher. That's where my name comes from. Um, 
So I find myself, um, if I have an identity at all into terms of who I am with the knowledge of my background, um, I find it wonderfully fascinating that I am considered part of the establishment of this country with Lithuanian blood in me and English blood at the same time. I'm a complete mix. My mother, at the end of the Jewish line, married my father and she, she's pure English and I come from Sandwich in Kent. So I'm, I'm a great big mixture of, of, of many things. But what it's given me as an identity is that I've, I've never been allowed to get too above myself because I'm, I, I'm aware I find myself amongst you all and with you all. And in some ways, every now and again, I may feel an outsider, which has made me relate to outsiders within my profession, to play people who are slightly marginalized, like Caliban, or even Poirot, who's a Belgian in England. I, I really do relate to that, and I wonder if those roles that I can sort of inhabit and relish have something to do with me as an outsider, as well as being considered part of the establishment. Does that? That's a really interesting <laughs> reply. And funnily enough, I think you can sometimes feel an outsider when you're out of step yeah. with the prevailing culture. You can have that same lonely experience. Yes, well, you can as a Christian because it's a constant swimming against yeah. the tide, yeah. isn't it? Right, let's have another question. Who, yes, Tim. Tim Boswell, Tim Lord Boswell. Boswell. Unless I'm much mistaken, correct me if I am, one of your leisure suits and, and um, passions is the canals. Is? The canals. Yes, very much. Oh my goodness, bravo. Um, I wondered if you could reflect, in the sense of what Stephen said about identity, on the importance for people around this place in having a hinterland and activities which are not purely political. And also, whether you've learned anything from the canals sailing as our Lord did from time to time, <laughs> even occasionally having to uh, bail out or, or the boat, um, as to anything it's informed into your Christian life as well. I think the canals are a great leveller, and I think it's important in life to be levelled mm -hmm. um, and not to stay on certain planes for too long, but to come down. And what the canals did for me uh, and my wife um, were, were extraordinary, really. We, I was at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, Stratford-upon-Avon, and I, we were sick of digs, theatre digs. I mean, it, all those descriptions of theatre digs, believe me, they are so true. And we didn't have a home, and we were looking for something to live on. And at that time, I was looking out of my dressing room window on the river at Stratford-on-Avon, I saw these like pencil cases on the water, and they're narrow boats. And we started investigating, and that not only was our first home, but it, we went through most of the reps that were on canals. And while we did so, we read the history of our canal system. 
And we learned great things, like there's more mileage of, of canals in Birmingham than there are in Venice. Wow, really? Yeah. And didn't, didn't the Germans miss out on bombing the Midlands uh, canals that are above the roads? They're high. We would have had the whole of the Midlands flooded with the canals. Amazing that didn't happen. But going through the canals now, ladies and gentlemen, I'll, I'll, I'll say my song about canals. It, you go through like ghost towns. Canals were there for industry. Canals were our trunk roads, if you like. The, the, the um, canal boat was our lorries. Pickford's, Pickford's removals started on the canal for example. And everything used to be delivered by canal. It took a long time. It wasn't Amazon. You don't, you, don't, you don't order it today and it's there in the morning, even on a Sunday. You order it then and four weeks later, five weeks later, six weeks later, you may get it. And that's only from Birmingham if you're in London. <laughs> you know. So it's a long time. No, I'll tell a lie. It was about a week, actually. They used to, Birmingham to London, on the flyboats, were working night and day. They used to... Um, they used to do it in, in five days. But we were levelled. Why were we levelled? Because we read the history of the canals, night after night after night, and got past the romantic roses and castles on the side, and read of the hardship of the life, but actually a better life than a miner at the time, because they were in the open air. But the tragedy of living in that small little space at the back, and we read stories, for example, a, a family were going through the Braunston Tunnel, that big, 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 long tunnel. Blisworth, isn't it? The biggest one, the longest one, and ha halfway down. And they were on a flyboat run. They had to keep going. Because if they were late at the other end, they'd lose their boat. And one of their children fell in the canal. And they kept going. Now, mums and dads, imagine it. You keep going. Why? Because there's three other people in there that will starve to death if you don't get. So we learnt about the schools, the education on the canals. And this, in a sense, this is the, this is the hard life. This is the poor life. This is, this is the people that now I'm a Christian, I knew that Jesus was ministering to. He visited the poor. He said the most extraordinary thing in the beginning of what we now know as, and it can put people off, the Beatitudes, but his teaching, the beginning of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, turned society on its head, where people with wealth, people with money, people with power, people with fame were important. But he actually said, blessed are the poor. Who was he talking to? The poor. He wasn't talking to the bigwigs and the fame. He was talking to the poor. And they said, what? What do you mean, blessed are the poor? Yeah, blessed are the poor. And we've had it in this country, in the Industrial Revolution and in the past. We've been a country of poverty and wealth. And the division between them has been appalling. And you get all that from the canals because you've got the big canal boat owners that are millionaires and the poor people that may lose their boat if they're late. So it was a great leveller 
And that's what we learnt from the canals and how I can apply it to my Christian life. A big, long answer, that they say. Well, I'm glad we've unearthed that about you as well, your passion <laughs> for the canals. It would be a revelation to many. Yes, there's a question right at the back. Yeah, first of all, thank you very much for that. That was, thank you very much for that. That was absolutely brilliant. It's nice to hear of your life and the life that you lived and how you looked at the Lord Jesus. It was so important. Thank you for that. Um, I, I just wonder, in the life that you chose to be an actor, how great the temptations were when you were surrounded by everyone who was, I'm not judgmental, but perhaps maybe weren't following the, the life that you were following. So how, how difficult was it to be a Christian in, in that sort of environment? And, or, or, do you, or do you, as I think you do, was it an opportunity to witness uh, to people right about you who would see your life and perhaps say to themselves, that was a life that I wanted to live as well? Just simply your thoughts upon that. Thank you. I'm going to let you down on one point. I'm very bad witnessing. Uh, this, this evening is the first public time I've ever talked about my faith. I've talked about my faith little bits in interviews, which Caroline has picked up, but this is the first open evening I've ever done. Um, so it's, it's a first for us all. And it's been extraordinary for me. Um, I've been thinking about tonight for a very long time. <laughs> um, I have to say that a life as an actor and to be a Christian is very hard. The temptations are there wherever you look, from drugs to sex to anything you name. Your worldview as an actor without faith, and I was an actor without faith for many, many years, from 23 to 40, had to do with success how can I get a life? How can I become famous? What can I do? How can I support a family? How can I get money? How can I make a hit? What a terrible way to live. That doesn't do a thing. How can I get rich? This is worldview. This is worldview that is so mucked up and, and, uh, and, and confused. And then when you convert, have a conversion experience, and you suddenly read the Bible and it starts to what I call convict you. You remember I said you read the Bible and it can speak to you and make you realize what you may be sort of not doing right. And it sort of makes you wish you were doing better. And there was I, 40 years of age, as an, act, as an actor, um, and, and having to rethink my whole existence. How do I look at roles I want to play? I'll tell you a quick story. Quick story, and that'll sum it up. I was offered to play, we're in Parliament, John Profumo, in a film called Scandal. Within six months of having finished reading the Bible for the first time. So I knew what I should be, but I was about a thousand miles from even beginning. But I knew what I should be. John Profumo, the film about John Profumo was all about his sexual relationship that we all know about in Parliament with Christine Keeler, Mandy Rice Davis, etc., etc. And it was quite lurid. And I turned it down from a moral standpoint. Why? Because I didn't want to slander anybody that was still living, let alone if he was dead. I didn't think. I didn't think that was right from a Christian perspective. 
And then the temptations came in. Four figures became five figures. Money beyond my wildest dreams at the time. I'd never even dreamt of earning. And I would come home and say to Sheila, I can't believe what they've offered. And it's only five weeks filming. I can do that. Come on, nobody worries. Look, it's a movie. Who cares? So I'd go to bed at night and then wake up thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't. But I want to. I can't. Don't be daft. Of course you can. And that fight, in the end, I did turn it down finally. I had to write to every single producer individually. And I got a letter back saying that was the end of my film career. That's an example. I'm not saying every job is like that. I'm just saying that was given to me to deal with at that time. Was I right? Was I wrong? It doesn't matter whether I was right or wrong. What I should have done was ring him up and said, would you mind, actually? And he would have said, probably no, enjoy yourself. And then I probably would. But whether I was right or whether I was wrong is not at issue. What was at issue was that I had read a book that told me how I should be. And it was that, that level of being a human being that I wanted to maintain. Not whether I was doing right or wrong. I knew what I should do because I, was, I had a conviction about what is, what is the right thing for me as a Christian. And it, that goes through your whole life. The beautiful thing about me playing Poirot, of course, was he considered himself un bon catholique. <laughs> and he actually said, I have been put on this world to rid it of crime. <laughs> Great, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that the role I wanted. Yep. Very good. That story, is, that story is actually very powerful in here because we, we face similar temptations. You know, if you're not careful, this can, this can be all about you in politics. And, um, and, it, and it can lead you to, to the wrong choices and all the temptations you describe. And I think one of the hard things is, as a Christian, to resist those and you know, stay focused on the fact that you are, you're still a child of God. You are who God made well, you. Well, that's, and that's your leveling. That's yeah. your level ground. And same. you know what? Everybody, yeah. whether, they're, whether they're Christian or not, every single body has what they call, well, in a, in a society like that, we have a conscience. Mm -hmm. We do have a conscience. Some people call it God's barometer. <laughs> but you know what's right, and you do know what's wrong. And at our age and our level, and what we, we do know, then it's up to you. That's very helpful. Very, very helpful thought for everybody, God's barometer. Now, is there one more? Yes, Jeffrey, Sir Jeffrey. Yes. Uh, David, thank you. It's been really encouraging to hear you speak. Um, and um, I know it, we all know how difficult it is to be in the public eye and, and to witness to our faith. It's for, and increasingly in the world we're in, it's frowned upon. Um, but as you were sharing with us um, your own personal journey, you spoke of how the letters that have been written by Paul and others had influenced you. <laughs> And so I want to encourage you to think about something. Um, I want to encourage you to think about writing 
someday about what you've shared with us because I think it could be very powerful um, and I think you know what God might do with that is a matter for him but um, I think you could reach a lot of people without imposing you know, <coughs> your views but, but just sharing I think um, your journey your personal journey I think could be a, a great source of encouragement to a lot of people and I would just encourage you to think about doing that and I say that as a as Caroline, I told her earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm probably the biggest Poirot fan in this place. <laughs> I, I spend my, my escapism on a, at the weekend is to sit and watch, um, you know, program after program oh, after program. That's so nice. So thank you for bringing yeah. so much entertainment and joy into my life. But I think in the sharing of your faith, um, you could bring a lot of joy into other people's lives. Oh, how very kind. Thank you very, very much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel very moved by what you've said, and um, especially as it's the first time I've done it. <laughs> um, obviously, uh, the thought of doing something like that—I would hate. Do you know? I would hate though to be any type of. of um, I'm not a theologian. I'm not. I, I don't even pretend anything like that. Although I have studied theology, I you know, I'm not a theologian. I am an actor. I'm part of us. We're all holding hands on this journey, as I keep saying. But the thought of actually writing something, I will give it thought because you've actually said it to me, and that moves me greatly. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, I think it was a very good suggestion because actually I, I think your stories are, are very powerful and I suspect that if you started writing more would come that would illustrate as as simply and powerfully as you did to Jim with your question about how to deal with temptation and that speaks volumes to people because they, they're worked examples and I did have a question I didn't ask you which was you know how did it change your life after you experienced that conversion but you've answered that in the response that you gave to Jim. And I think a lot of Christians and non-Christians questing out how to live their lives well, would find your stories really interesting. Well, and also, just let me say to everybody that if you live a life like Jesus tells you to live, and, or, or indeed as he lived, don't forget, you know, let's not romanticize uh, Jesus too much. Um, he, his own worldview that was given to him as a son of God and how he, lifted out, how he lived it out on earth as a man, got him crucified. Yeah. Don't forget that. Yes. All right? So yeah. don't, this is not holier than thou speak. And it ain't going to be a, a, any easier for any of us. If we swim against the tide, then it's going to be hard. And it is hard. But do you know what? At the end of the day, you have lived your life with a worldview that is a worldview of love and compassion and forgiveness and generosity to everyone, strangers, and trying so hard to find some common ground with the people you really, really don't like. <laughs> this is important. This is part of being a Christian. And what's also important is when people know you're a Christian, yeah. they probably don't want to know you anymore as well. Some of your best friends will go, Oh, God, he's gone. He's gone weird. <laughs> you know, all that. It's not easy. But if you live or try to live a life of love, 
and compassion and forgiveness. If you try and you'll fail daily, that's a given, but if you try, at least when you slip off your perch at the other end, you will have the hope mm. of spending it in eternity mm. with the one person who gave you that worldview. And I think that's brilliant. Well, that's a wonderful <laughs> note to end on from you. And I, I think actually probably what you may not realise is that you not only, I think, do you speak from your heart and your head about... Um, how uh, knowing Jesus Christ changed your life, which is a very powerful message for people who haven't yet embraced that step, and there may be some here. But for a lot of people here, we are on a journey, as you say, holding hands. You get discouraged on the journey. Of course journey. you do. And what I think you've done for, you know, probably the vast majority of us this evening is actually give us that encouragement. Um, and, you know, that is, that is incredibly precious in, in this place. It, oh. We've chosen a tough vocation in here as well. And I, I'm yeah. just clear that the, the passage which changed your life was about liberation and setting people free from certain death. I thought that was, I, I read it on the train coming down <laughs> from Birmingham today. People were rubbernecking what I was reading on the train. <laughs> and you know, what a powerful passage Romans 8 is. Mm. Uh, but you've above all given us everybody, everybody in this room leaves with more hope as a result of listening to what you've had to say. Oh. The, the real life experience of trying to live it up oh. and the reminder about why that's worth doing today, tomorrow and the next mm. day. So, you know, we're enormously grateful to you and I don't underestimate how hard it is to make yourself vulnerable in public <laughs> and share from your heart uh, and, and it, you know, and the risks that entails for you in doing. But thank you very much for being brave and coming here to, we are very privileged to share that with you. And we will, we will, be, we will regard as precious what you have said to us this evening. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. Thank you.